So on Wednesday, uh, we're going verse by verse through the Gospel of John, and on Sunday, we've been going theme by theme, but I think now uh, we can start saying we're going scene by scene. We went verse by verse through this particular text on Wednesday, and uh, there's lots of interesting things there that I'm not going to be able to bring out on a Sunday morning, but uh, if you want to go back and take a look at Wednesday's Bible study, in fact, if you will subscribe to the podcast, you'll get all of this stuff. Uh, Lige makes sure that all of the messages are on podcast. Just look for Pastor Daryl Hall, Lifeful Church, whatever your uh, platform is for podcasting, and you can get all of that. Um, but uh, the uh, Gospel of John movie uses the Good News Bible, and there's really, well, not really, there, there is no superfluous text. It is just the Scripture acted out on the screen. So that's why I've been using that on Sunday morning. Uh, today, I have, uh, I'm making use of the New Living Translation, which is another uh, very accessible, dynamic translation. And don't be thrown off by people who are concerned that we have so many translations. How can we know? Um, how many of you know that the Bible is not written in English? You know this, right? Yeah, it's written in Hebrew, a small part of it in Aramaic, and in Greek. Uh, how many of you read Koine Greek? Okay, I didn't think so. You need a translation, isn't that correct? Yes. How many of you read Hebrew? Oh, so you need a translation, right? How many read Aramaic? I mean, I studied Hebrew and I studied Greek, and I can barely make out words in Hebrew to this day. I'm okay with my Greek, but Aramaic? No, not even, right? We need translations, so we need credible translations. So uh, more translations is not uh, a disparagement on the Word of God. It's going to help you to understand what underlies this right? What is it saying in Greek? What is it saying in Hebrew? More importantly, what is the Holy Spirit trying to say to me through all of this? And that's my goal, particularly on Sunday morning, is to go theme by theme or now scene by scene through this and present something that I believe the Spirit may be saying to us. So today's message uh, is new wine, new way. Jesus came to bring a new way. And this first miracle that he uh, performed, which by the way, in John, they're not called miracles. What are they called in John? They're called signs, right? What is the significance of a sign? A sign points to something else, doesn't it? Okay, so there's kids in the room. Um, how many of you kids like McDonald's? Yeah? How do you know when there's a McDonald's? Don't you see the, the golden arches? Now, when you see the golden arches sign, do you walk up to the sign and hold out your hand and pray that hamburgers will drop out of the sign? No. No. What do you do? You go inside the restaurant, okay? So the sign is pointing to something beyond itself. Jesus didn't do miracles just because he wanted to be a magician and perform tricks. The miracles that Jesus did are called signs in John because they all point to who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Right, he's the son of God, right? Okay, he, as we saw in John chapter one, he's the word, right? 
He is the, the one through whom everything was created. How else could someone take just water and turn it into wine? I don't know if you know the process for making wine. I had a professor, oh, not a professor. He probably should have been a professor. He was a high school teacher, uh, my physics teacher in high school, um, who uh, said that you could make wine if you had grape juice and yeast, Right? Yeast is uh, what you put in bread that makes it rise. And it's called balloon wine. Well, what has to happen is you put a little yeast in the bottom of some grape juice and you let this chemical process happen with the yeast and the grape juice. It's called balloon wine because you put a balloon on the top of the bottle and you wait until the balloon inflates. That tells you that all of this chemical reaction is happening down in the bottle. And then when the balloon goes back down, then it has become wine. Well, that takes about a month. Quite frankly, I, you know, I was a high school kid. I wasn't even old enough to drink wine, but I was like, hey, man, I'm going to try that. And it never worked for me. But the point I'm making is it's a process. It takes time, right? They have to grow the grapes and pick the grapes and crush the grapes. And then they have to put the grapes in these barrels with a, 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 an agent-like yeast, and it takes time. Jesus could just do it. And it shows that Jesus is uh, the agent of creation, the one through whom God created everything. But I believe that this miracle that Jesus performed, this first sign that he performed, was significant for a number of reasons. First of all, why did he perform this sign? He didn't perform it publicly. In fact, if we look carefully at the text, it says that the only people that knew that Jesus was the one that turned this water into wine were the servants. You saw them up on the screen. They filled those jars with water. Jesus' mother obviously knew, and his disciples. Nobody else knew. He didn't want anybody else to know yet. That's why he told his mother, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He didn't want to escalate the timeline um, and you know, push himself forward as Messiah quite yet. Although we're going to see if we get to the next scene from John 2 today that uh, he did do something that pushed the timeline quite a bit. But nonetheless, he did this privately. Well, why did he do it? You know why? Because his mom asked him to. Kids, does your mom ever ask you to do anything? Yeah? Do you go, oh, man, I don't want to do that. Clean your room. I don't want to do that. Take out the trash. I don't want to do that. Jesus was a 30-year-old man, and he even said, you know, lady, ma'am, dear woman, what, are, what do we have to do with this problem that these people are having? And you know what? She just totally trusted her son. She turned to the servants. She said, do what he says. Kids, when your mom asks you to do something, what do you do? You do what she says. Jesus did that. The other reason that he did this was because it was an embarrassment uh, for this family. That weddings were a big deal. They still are a big deal. It's, uh, I think it's uh, providential that we discovered that we have a, a new engagement here. Weddings are a huge deal. But in their day, weddings were a far bigger deal. You think you've gone through a lot of planning when you plan a wedding. Man, these people, a wedding, the wedding happened over a period of seven days. It was this huge, huge feast, right? 
And uh, wine was a very important part of their culture, and it was a very important part of that feast. That's pretty much what they drank. They didn't drink Dr. Pepper. They didn't drink sweet tea. They really didn't even drink the water because it wasn't that clean. They drank wine. Now, this wine was not like our wine. Our wine has a lot of alcohol in it, and uh, you know it doesn't take much for you to feel it. Their wine had very little alcohol in it. You'd have to drink a lot of it to feel it, right? Even kids drank wine back then because it was not much different than grape juice. Now, they were all careful because the Bible says that getting drunk is wrong, that it is foolish, and they didn't want to do that. But you know, if you're at a party for an entire week, chances are you're going to drink enough wine to where you might be able to feel it. And apparently in the text here, we find that they did. But I think that um, in addition to doing this because his mother asked him, doing it to save this couple from embarrassment, he manifestly did it to point to the fact that he is the son of God, right? But I think he chose this sign as his first sign because it is about new wine. Listen, they ran out of the old wine. Jesus made new wine. So what we find is um, over in Matthew, Jesus talks about new wine, okay? And he says, people don't put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. What Jesus is saying is he didn't come to confirm religion the way people had been practicing it, right? Jesus didn't come to affirm the religious expectations and practices of fallen humanity. He came to establish a personal way for us to connect with God. Say this, say it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. This whole miracle was about a relationship, a relationship to his mother. Obviously, his mom and Jesus' family knew this family really well because his mom was already there. She was probably helping with all the preparations. Jesus did this because it was about a relationship. Interestingly, the new wine that we call Christianity supersedes the old wine of religion. Now, you know what? People still come to church with the same ideas about religion. This is about performance, okay? People have a performance mentality. If I just do these things, then I can get God on my side. If I just do these things, then I can gain God's favor. If I just do all of these good things, then God will bless me. But friends, that's not the way the new way, that's not the way it works, okay? It begins and ends with faith. As the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1.17, it is from faith to faith, for the righteous will live by faith. We put our faith in Jesus. Isn't it interesting that even though Jesus seemed to kind of push back against his mom when she asked him to do this, when he said, you know, what do we have to do with this? My hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. She trusted him. Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust him? Even when you don't get what you want right away. Jesus, uh, Jesus' mother Mary said, do what he says. And so that's what the servants did. I love the acting in the Gospel of John movie. The servants are like going, huh? Right? And then it's even greater. The, the one servant, I love, his, uh, I love his face. Jesus says, okay, now dip some out and take it to the master of the feast. And the guy goes, huh, okay, this is gonna be fun, Right? 
But see, in the process of trusting and obeying, a miracle can happen. Amen? You do what you're supposed to do, not so you can earn God's favor, but so that he can work his works through you. Amen? So that's what happened here. We think it's about performance, right? Jesus took stone water pots that were used for ceremonial washing. So chances are, everybody that came into that wedding held their hands out like this, and the servants dipped out water and poured it over their hands. Now, we've just come through the pandemic like not too long ago, so we know how important it is to wash your hands. But these guys weren't washing their hands for hygienic reasons. They were washing their hands for ceremonial reasons, right? They had to get all of the cooties of the world off of them, right? Do you guys even use that term anymore, cooties? No? Kids, do you know what a cootie is? No? All right, so when I was y'all's age, us boys thought girls had cooties. They do? Do, they, do girls have cooties? Now, I don't, know, I don't know what a cootie was supposed to be. It was just bad, right? So if a girl touched you, you'd have to go, ew, I have cooties, I have cooties. And you'd have to go and you'd have to uncootify yourself. You'd have to get the cooties off of you, right? I even made a sign on my desk and I said that this is a decootifier, right? So any girl that touched my desk, it automatically became clean and I didn't have any cooties. Well, these people thought that if you went out in the world, if you went out in the marketplace, right, and you did business, you got icky, worldly cooties on you. And so before they ate, they had to be very, very holy and have their hands washed like this. Interestingly, that's not in the Bible. It was a tradition that was handed down among all the religious people of the day. So isn't it interesting, isn't it cool that Jesus took what they used for religion, for performance, and turned it into a receptacle for the new wine, right? So it's not about performance any longer. The old wine ran out. The old wine of religion was running out. But Jesus created a new way for people to relate to God. That's why it's about a relationship and not about religion. And according to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, the old covenant, the old way of relating to God became obsolete. Doesn't mean it didn't have any meaning any longer. It just means that it was no longer the way that God chose to relate to his people. Does anybody know what that word obsolete means? Okay, here's a good example. Um, I like this example. The typewriter. Typewriters are obsolete. Okay? I learned to type on a manual typewriter. Right? Clack, 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 clack. So it, had, it was big like this. It had a ribbon up here. And it had all of these keys that came up when you typed an F or an A or an H or whatever, it had a, an arm that had that letter engraved on, on the tip of it, and this ribbon that had ink on it came up in between this and the paper, and it hit it, and it pushed that into the paper, so you had all of these letters. Clack, 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 okay? So when I went to high school, it was no longer about manual typewriters. Now it was electric typewriters, okay? And you could, this had a different way of doing it, but it was the same principle. It was still hammering a carved letter through a piece of ribbon into a piece of paper, right? 
Here's the interesting thing. Even though typewriters are obsolete, we still use the same keyboard, don't we? The same keyboard that you would have found on a typewriter in the early part of the 20th century is used on this smartphone right now. That keyboard comes up. It's used on your computer. It's used on your laptop. It's the same format. That keyboard is the same format. So you see, there's something underlying, even though the technology, if you will, is obsolete, there's something underlying it that continues on. There is a way. God hasn't changed, amen? God is the same God. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. The righteousness of God has not changed since the Old Testament, but our way of connecting to him has changed because he sent his son to earth to die on the cross and rise from the dead, amen? So although the old covenant, the old typewriter is obsolete, the way that undergirds it, God's way still is there and it comes through Christ. This is the new wine. Religion is based on performance. You work your way into God's favor. You obey laws. You, you follow tradition. You do good deeds. You pray hard that God pays attention to you and blesses your efforts. Jesus came to establish the gospel of grace. Amen? You know what grace means? Grace means you don't deserve it, but you got it anyway. Kids, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever gotten a gift that you knew you didn't deserve because you hadn't been a very good kid, but your parents got it for you anyway? Yeah? Okay. Sometimes we get all caught up in Christmas where, well, we, you know, you better do good or Santa's not going to bring you anything because he's, you know, got a list and all this other stuff. Man, I'm telling you, Jesus ain't Santa. Jesus gives us grace. Even when we don't deserve it, he's good to us. Isn't that great? That's why it's called the good news. This is about grace, not religion, not legalism, not watch your P's and Q's, not keep all these rules, but enter into a relationship with Jesus. And then you know what? You want to obey. You want to do what's right because you love him. You love him, and so you want, the, you want to do the, what honors him, and he loves you, and he wants the best for you. That's why he wants you to follow his regulations, his rules, if you will. Jesus came to establish the gospel of grace, and that permits believers. Are you a believer? If you're a believer, raise your hand, all right? That permits believers to enter into a personal relationship with Father God. I don't have a relationship with a book of rules that I try to keep, and then that gives me some hope that maybe, maybe God will bless me, but I'm just doing these rules. Doesn't matter what I believe or what I feel, I'm just doing it, just do it. I just gotta do it. And then I'm hoping that if I keep all these rules and I don't make any mistakes, then God's gonna look my way. That's religion, that's the nature of it. And a lot of people, even those who are in Christian churches, still live that way. But it is about a relationship with Father God because of the sacrifice of his son on the cross, all right? Now, that I believe is the lesson uh, that we can learn from this scene of Jesus turning water into wine. Now, in the second half of John chapter two, you're amazed that I'm going this fast, right? We were in John chapter one for two months, and now we're gonna be in John chapter two for two, two sessions, three sessions, all right? So there's another little piece of video here about what Jesus did next. It says that he and his disciples went to Capernaum for a while, then they went down, and actually it says up to Jerusalem because you always go up to Jerusalem because it's on a hill, even though they were going south. 
So here is the little piece of video from the Gospel of John movie about the next scene. So gentle Jesus, meek and mild, made a whip of cords and drove these people out of the temple who were trying to do business there. I'm gonna tell you something, friends. There are people that do whatever they do for a profit. There are people that get into the church business that do religious things for a profit. You could say, going back to the the previous idea about us being performance-oriented a lot of times when it concerns religion, that we're trying to profit for ourselves. We're all saying, what's in it for me, man? Why should I pray? What's the point? Why should I go to church? Why should I read the Bible? What is it gonna do for me? See, we're in it for profit. And there are people that have religious TV shows or religious YouTube channels or who podcast or what, you know, whatever that, the case may be who are there to make a profit. They're gonna tell you that if you give them money, you'll become rich. But really the only people becoming rich are the people that are taking your money. So I'm gonna say this, the gospel is not for sale, amen? I have a real problem when a worship band or a celebrity pastor goes on tour and charges money for tickets. The gospel is not for sale. Now, I'm not gonna name any names here, but I'm sure you can figure this out. Now, it costs money to rent out you know, a huge place and uh, to provide security and you know, to, to put the sound and all of these things together but it costs money for us to do what we do here. Do, you, do we charge admission for you to come to church? No. I, you know, believe it or not, it used to be churches were so popular that you had to pay for a seat. Did you know that? You had to pay for a seat and you got your pew and your seat because you paid for it. Wow. And then on top of that, they expected you to give. I have always believed that if the Lord wants our church here, he's gonna provide for us and he's gonna do that through you, amen? And you know, and I've made it well known recently that we've you know, experienced some transition and some changes here that have caused us to have a drop in finances. But I haven't asked you to give sacrificially. I haven't tried to promise you that if you give more, you're gonna get rich. I've simply asked you to be faithful. And last month we paid our bills, Amen. And March is another month, so I pray you continue to be faithful. But that's not the same thing as charging you admission. I even get uncomfortable when we have like bake sales and so forth out here. I always say, have a suggested price, a suggested donation, but anybody can take whatever they want for whatever they can afford. I don't want to charge for anything. I don't want to charge for the gospel because I believe God is going to move the hearts of his people and they're going to do what they're supposed to do, right? Um, Jesus didn't come to maintain business as usual either. He didn't come to affirm our religious sentiments and practices and he didn't come to maintain business as usual. He didn't come for his own personal profit. He came to sacrifice himself. Listen to what Jesus said. This is in Mark 10, 45. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
That's Jesus coming to earth to sacrifice himself for you and I. That's the the model that we look to when it concerns what we do with our time, what we do with our money, what we do with our talent, right? Um, So he makes this statement that's really, you know, misunderstood, and I would have misunderstood it. He said, they said, you know, show us a miracle. Now, I believe that as you finish the text in chapter two, which we we will do on uh, Wednesday, that um, although the turning turning the water to wine in Cana was the first miracle, Jesus, while he was in Jerusalem, performed other miracles, which we find, of course, in the synoptic gospels. And people were aware of these signs that he was doing. As a result, when he cleansed the temple, they didn't send temple police in to arrest him and take him out. They already recognized that he had some sort of authority here, okay? If somebody came in the back door of this church right now and started turning over chairs and chasing you out, I guarantee you Craig and I would be tackling them, right? And we'd be saying, whoa, 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 I don't know what you think you're doing here. But see, if somebody randomly comes in the back of the room and starts turning over chairs and screaming and hollering, that's not the same as the Son of God walking into the temple that is the place of worship for his father and saying, you're turning my father's house into a marketplace. You're turning my father's place where his attention is. You're turning that into a source of profit for yourselves. And so, you know, he said, get these things out of here. Well, that's why they couldn't contradict him. So they said, you know what? Prove that you are who you say you are. That's what Satan said to Jesus in the wilderness. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the son of God, take a leap off of the pinnacle of the temple and the angels will catch you. If you are the son of God, Satan finally said, just bow down and worship me. But it started by Satan saying, do a trick for me. If you're the son of God, you should be able to do a trick. And Jesus wasn't willing to do that. But Jesus knew that the change was coming. The new wine meant the new way. And the new way meant that there would be a new temple. You see, what Jesus is doing and saying right here happened somewhere in the vicinity of 30 to 33 AD, probably, or maybe as early as 29. It depends on how you date Jesus, okay? But by 70 AD, by a little less than 40 years later, the temple was torn to the ground by the Romans. Titus, who later became an emperor, rolled into Jerusalem and put it under siege. And the temple was the last thing standing. Um, the, The Jewish zealots went into the temple and they fought from the temple grounds, which was horrendous that they, they were doing this, but they thought, well, if we lose this, we lose everything. Well, they did lose that. And the temple was torn to the ground. Guess what? That temple has not been rebuilt because God no longer pays attention to buildings of stone. He pays attention to living stones and that's you. Amen? Say, we are the temple. We are the church. And that's where God's spirit is. And that's where he lives today. That was established by Jesus, the cornerstone, when he died on the cross and rose from the grave. That's why he said, tear this down and I'll raise it in three days. Well, they did. They tried to tear Jesus down. They ripped him apart with whips. They nailed him to a cross. He was unrecognizable. They pulled out his beard. It was horrible. Kids, I'm not even going to get into it because it's scary and it's sad at the same time. And then they put him in a tomb. And on the third day, he rose. And that's why we continue to worship him today. He 
created a new way. There was new wine and he drove away those that were oriented toward profit because he was going to create a new way. He said, you want a miracle? You're gonna tear this temple down, but I will raise it in three days. And that's exactly what he did. And he becomes the source of eternal salvation for all that believe in him. So business has become our model for life. I don't know if you remember my Christmas sermon or not, but I've preached it in here a number of times. I said, there are three kinds of people. Do you remember me saying this? There are takers. There are traders, not traitors, traders. Hey, you want to trade? And there are givers. Jesus was a giver. He gave up his life for us. But most of us are traders, right? We trade a certain amount of work for a certain amount of money. That's, only, that's the only way the economy works. I'm not saying that we should uh, go towards socialism or communism because I know that people are inherently selfish and it doesn't work. What ends up happening is the government is in charge and the government tells everybody what to do. It's a, it's a wonderful ideal and there was a form of communism, if you will, in the early church, but it was willing. People just gave up their property, and they gave up their extra money and their extra clothing or whatever willingly. And then the apostles gave it out to those who had a need, right? Um, but that's not the same as the government forcing you to work and forcing you to give things up. But we're naturally oriented toward business, especially in this country. So instead of valuing a relationship with other people above money and things, we treat people as things to get money. Amen? And it's terrible. We need to value human beings, human life above everything else except God. But what we value is what is good for us, what we can get for what we do. And that's usually in the form of money. Business is our model. But when we come to Jesus, the model for life is no longer profit and business. The model for life is worship. Amen? That means I choose to offer myself to the Lord because he's given everything for me and I trust him to guide me and to give me wisdom and to provide for me. See, this is the reason why you can be a giver. You can be a giver because you can trust that God will reimburse you more than reimburse you if you are a giving person. Now, I'm not just talking about giving money to your church, right? You should learn to tithe. It's a biblical principle. That's how we pay our bills around here. It's also how God will bless the other 90% of your finances. But what I hope is that you are a giver, period. That if you have the ability to help somebody with your time or your talent or your treasure, that you're willing to do that. And you're not worried about running out because you know that God is a good and loving God and he wants to bless you so that you can continue to give. So we need to remove ourselves from this business mentality, right? I need to stop saying what's in it for me. As I said earlier, if I go to church, what's in it for me? If I read the Bible, well, what's in it for me? If I pray, well, what's in it for me? Well, if I tithe, what's in it for me? That is that selfish, profit-oriented motive. And when we come to Jesus, it is a personal motive. We are in a personal relationship with God. It's not a performance motive. It's not a profit motive. It's the motive of a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that motivates me to do everything. Now, over the last couple of weeks, I've made uh, multiple references uh, to the Asbury Revival. 
And what has encouraged me about that revival is that it has been very personally oriented. It has not been your typical religious experience where it is, you know, we've got to work ourselves up into this emotional frame of mind. We've got to roll around on the ground and, and jump pews and scream and holler and yell, or, you know, we've got to, uh, you know, do things in order to get God to bless us. No, man, these kids are just they repented of their sin and they're in love with Jesus. But here's the other thing that I love. Asbury got it right. One of the, the young men who uh, did a little testimonial on it said that Asbury didn't charge for anything. They had water stands out there. There were food trucks out there, okay? They had big screens out because people, it was a quarter mile line waiting to get into that chapel. And people were waiting in that line. It was cold, it was rainy. And people were still waiting in that line out there. And Asbury didn't charge anybody anything at all. That, my friend, is Jesus. Now, in order for Asbury to be able to do that, they've got to have a base of people that are giving. Because you can't give if you don't have anything to give, right? But this is what I love. Okay, the gospel is not for sale. If you find that someone, preacher, worship leader, um, author, whatever, is constantly talking about money, 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 they have the wrong motive, 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 motive. Amen? We follow Jesus, okay? And as a result, we have a relationship that we share with other people. As I said before, there's no longer a temple. We are the temple. We're the living stones. And here's the scripture for that. 1 Peter 2, 5, it says, um, this is Peter writing, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So I think that if Jesus showed up at some of these meetings, where I, I can remember going all the way back. Um, this is going back to my first youth ministry. Uh, the, youth, the youth ministry that I had at uh, Freeman Heights Baptist Church, where uh, Craig and Rachel were in my youth ministry. Um, we went to a few conferences, but those kids didn't like conferences. <laughs> when I was in the colony, that was my first youth group, they wanted to go to every conference right? There was the Dawson McAllister conference, and we went to that conference, and there was the youth evangelism conference, and we went to that, and they loved conferences, right? To this day, my first fruit from that ministry is a fellow who's a pastor now. He's got like six kids, and he's been a pastor for, well, as long as I've been a pastor, really, because uh, I started being a pastor after doing youth ministry for years and years. But nonetheless, he still goes to conferences. I see him on my, on my Facebook and he's constantly going to conferences. They were in love with conferences, right? So I tried to take you guys to conferences and you just looked at me like, this is boring. And I had to admit, it is kind of boring. So we stopped going to conferences. But what I noticed was, especially uh, with the Dawson McAllister conference, is that they would do a lot of teaching and then they would spend 15 or 20 minutes promoting all of these different things they wanted you to go out and buy. This is in the lobby and this is in the lobby and you can get this CD and you can get that t-shirt and you can get that workbook and you get money, 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 money. I got a problem with that. I really have a problem with that. I think 
God will move on the hearts of his people to fund ministry, amen? And so as a result, we need to be willing givers. We need to allow God to use us. And I think we need to steer away from pushing our money in these directions that are obviously business motivated. It's not about performance. It's not about profit. It is about a personal relationship with Jesus, amen? So the question is, do you have that personal relationship with Jesus? If you don't, you can call on the name of Jesus and establish that relationship today. Why don't you close your eyes and bow your heads for just a moment? Pastor Craig read a passage out of Acts chapter two this morning where the apostle Peter preached the first gospel sermon. And he quoted from Joel, the prophet Joel, and said, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what the apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call on Jesus' name this morning, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from eternal separation from God, death, hell. Saved from a world that is headed far away from God. But you've got to call on his name in faith. So here's a prayer you can pray to call on Jesus' name. Why don't you say these words after me? Say, dear Jesus, I believe in you. You are the son of God. I want a personal relationship with you. I open up my heart. I invite you to come inside. Be my savior. Be my Lord. I will follow you. Amen. Now, if you prayed that and you meant those words, then the Bible says that Jesus, by his spirit, came out of heaven and came into your heart. And he'll stay there. And he's not going away. And you can talk to him anytime. You don't have to just come to church and talk to Jesus. When you're scared, when you're mad, when you don't know what to think or say, you can talk to Jesus, right? It helps to close your eyes and bow your head so you can tune out everything. But you know what? You can talk to Jesus anytime, anywhere. You can talk to him in the car. You can talk to him in your bedroom. When you're gonna take a test at school, there's people that say, oh, there's no longer, uh, they don't allow prayer in school anymore. Balagna. You can always pray in school. In fact, you don't even have to close your eyes. You can just pray. You say, Lord Jesus, help me with this test. You got somebody picking on you, bullying you? Lord Jesus, help me to figure out how to deal with this bully. And he promises that he'll give you wisdom. And adults, I'm talking to kids here, but I'm sure that you can ratchet it up to your age level and understand what I'm saying. If you would like to give us feedback, uh, you can go to our website, lifewillchurch.com, and you will find uh, on the main page, there's a feedback tab, and you can click that. You can fill out that form. Uh, You can give us feedback. You can ask for prayer requests all sorts of things like that. I hope that you are able to do this. We have a text service uh, that I use to send out information on our church throughout the week. And uh, basically all you need to do is text the word LifeWell from your phone to 94000. And if you do that, it'll drop you into that news text list. and You'll get a couple of those texts uh, from us every week.